It's day two of the Darwin Festival at the University of Cambridge, celebrating the 150th anniversary of the publication of On the Origin of Species and the 200th anniversary of Darwin's birth. I'm Diana O'Carroll from The Naked Scientists, and we're here to meet the great and the good at the festival. So what can we expect for the remainder of the week? I'm Catherine Lawrence. I'm the Events and Festival Fringe Manager. I do all the logistics, the management and the organising and coordinating of the event. We've got some fabulous speakers still, of course. We've got all the fringe events are happening in the evening at different venues all over the, all over the city. We've got, of course, the celebration dinner, which is sold out. We've got Dame Gillian Beer. We've got Dame A.S. Byatt. We've got Amagoni. We've got Ian McEwen. We've got Terry Pratchett, of course. And we've got the Fitzwilliam Quartet at the Fitzwilliam Museum. We've got um, Susan Gritton and Friends on Friday, and that's a fabulous ending to the festival. Festival events manager Catherine Lawrence, with some of the big names taking part in this week's Darwin Festival. In and around the event itself, Chris Smith has been catching up with some of the attendees, and amongst them was Sriram, a journalist from the Maharashtra Times in India. So far as India is concerned, I can tell that India is just 60 years old, because we got independence in forty-seven. So last 29 years, there are tremendous developments. And people, general reader, they are not interested in reading stories about scams. What they are interested in knowing is about the latest developments in the field of science and technology. Because common man in India has realized that science and technology is going to make his life very easy. So there is a tremendous response from our readers when they come across news item or an article about scientific issues. One very contentious scientific issue, certainly in America, to a lesser extent in this country, is the question of how evolution and religion sit together. So if I were to go to India, would I find the same debate there, or is it not really an issue in India? No. We are fully convinced that there is no intervention of God. Everything is created by some almighty power. You name differently, but there is some almighty power which is invisible which controls the universe but that doesn't necessarily mean that that power interferes in the life of every person so evolution takes place on its own there is no intervention by god from a single cell to multicellular animal what darwin said now there are some missing links now we must try to understand what those missing links are and we must try to interpret why these things are there. In India, unlike US, there is no debate on this issue. Journalist Sriram talking to Chris Smith on how Darwin and the divine don't always intersect. But what about the evolution of religion itself? Speaking at the festival today was Harvey Whitehouse and the ABC's David Fisher met up with him to find out more. We don't know when the first religion appeared. It could be that some of the traits that we're quite happy to slap the label religion on are much more ancient even than behaviourally modern humans. But I think there's um, some evidence that organised religion is a modern human phenomenon. We don't know, but we can be reasonably confident that large-scale, highly routinized kinds of religions of the sort that most people think of when they think of world religions, for instance, no more than a few thousand years old. And in Western Asia, we think the point of origin right now, we think, is probably in what's now called Eastern Anatolia, probably about eight to 9,000 years ago. What were the features of those very early religions? 
I think the very earliest religions were more like the kind of informal religiosity that you have in parts of the world where people have given up on organised religion. So they consist of a real sort of mixed bag of things like, you know, afterlife beliefs or ideas about the efficacy of ritual or about, you know, supernatural agents of all kinds, but that are not necessarily connected up into what you might call a a proper tradition or or a system of ideas. Now, we're here at a conference discussing Darwin and evolution. Do you think it's correct to say that religion has evolved? I mean, there's an ongoing debate about whether some of the universal traits that we find in all human societies that we tend to label religious are just byproducts of cognitive machinery that evolved for quite other purposes, or whether it was adaptive actually to have beliefs like a notion of a, of a deity that's perhaps watching people, seeing what they're up to, that kind of thing. On the other hand... There's another sense in which you know, evolutionary theory may be said to be relevant to the study of religion, which is how as cultural systems they've evolved over time. And a whole battery of other questions arises from that kind of perspective. Harvey Whitehouse, who works on cultural transmission at the University of Oxford, and he was speaking to ABC's David Fisher. Another huge topic in modern Darwinian discourse is genomics, and one of the prime movers is John Sulston. He worked on sequencing the genome of a nematode worm in the 90s, and it was this that eventually led to the Human Genome Project. John spoke to Chris Smith. I read your book that you wrote with Georgina Ferry, which was called The Common Thread, Mm. and the most reassuring bit of that book for me was the bit where you say, I'd been working at the Molecular Biology Laboratory in Cambridge for something like 12 years where my boss said, perhaps you should write some of this up into a paper. Hasn't science changed? I mean, you know, how many people would get away with not actually publishing anything, just building a huge body of knowledge that they then could turn into a Nobel Prize later? Yes, I, I think it wasn't quite as long as 12 years, but it's true that, that, that Sydney and, and other people at the LMB were not particularly rushing to publish. As a matter of fact, I think we need to rediscover that quite strongly. I'm, I'm working with people who feel that um, really people are publishing far too much. The, you know, the, the pressure to, to, for output numerically, is exceeding the capacity of the system to cope. We know we're all very worried about the level of fraud and falsification which goes on, and part of the reason for that is pressure to publish and the inability of the referees to keep up with what's going on. Well, the reason I brought this up is because, of course, the person who we're here to acknowledge this week, Charles Darwin, sat on his manuscript for 50 years, almost 50 years, but for a very long time before he actually put forward a very robust synthesis of what he'd been working on his entire life. So you're arguing, then, we should try and return to that kind of mindset. Well, that that certainly was extreme, and, of course, he was triggered by a competitor in the end and rushed into print. (laughs) So I think that he was not uncommunicative but it was a simpler age in the sense of the numbers of people involved in the field, and he was able to do much of it by correspondence. This is true very often of, of early fields. It was true of early work with nucleic acids after the time of the, the discovery of the structure of DNA. It was true with our own early work with the nematode. A lot of informal communication. And it's only when fields get very big that the, the public communication gets so important. But, of course, one should publicly communicate anyway because everybody should have access to science. John Salston, a Cantabrian now with the University of Manchester. Elsewhere in the publishing world lies poetry, and yes, science can be poetic too. Here's the naked scientist Laura Sol with more on evolving words. Poetry and science. Not necessarily two things you would associate, but that's exactly what's being done here, and all around the UK, with the Evolving Words Project. People from all disciplines, ages and backgrounds have come together to create materials celebrating both Darwin's anniversary and the spoken word. Duke of Eldhouse, 
explains what it's all about. The Evolving Words Project has taken several national groups together, including some at Liverpool, Manchester and Leeds, and here at Cambridge. And what they've done is they've brought together a poet or a rapper or a spoken word artist or a combination of all of those and a scientist. And the aim is to inspire and to produce material for the public, for public performance of some sort, be it art or be it um, theatre performances, loosely based around the theme of evolution and Darwin, and hopefully attract those people who might otherwise not be exposed to them. Contributors and leaders have gained from the project in many different ways. Johann Kiergaard is one of the writers. It helped me express myself in ways such as poetry to really get what I want to say heard. Anna Roundtree explained why it is the synthesis of science and the arts that is particularly important. Well, I think what's been particularly interesting about this project is that instead of looking at the conflicts between the arts and sciences, which is what we often hear so much about, we've actually been looking at the relationship between them. So we've almost got a symbiotic relationship happening between the arts and spoken word um, and science. And I think that's really helpful both for me as a writer in being able to combine both disciplines in my future work, but also for other people hearing that. It's a really um, new and fresh way of approaching both science and spoken word. At Tangled Words, one of the festival's fringe events, poets of many ages came together to share their work. One of the writers, Jade Bradford, read her piece, If You Should Choose to Evolve. If you should choose to evolve in our supermodern society, there are many avenues you could take. Modern man, it would seem, with all the modern ideas and modern technology and such, still seems to be, at his centre, prehistoric. With this in mind, here are some pointers, so if you should choose to evolve, you have a starting block. One. It's not something that's just out there in science. It's something you experience every day when you get ill or when you decide that you prefer one mate over another mate or the fact that you like an apple rather than a pear. All of that in some way is a form of evolution at work. You're selecting for things, you're deciding what you like, what you don't like, and your body deals with the impacts of external environments. So it's everyday stuff. And I think this is what's so important to communicate it's not just some random theory of gravity or solar pulses that is perhaps somewhat intangible, but it's, it's here and now. So you see, it's easy, and if you should choose to evolve, there is no time like the present. As our good friend Mr Darwin said, a man who dares to waste one hour of time has not discovered the value of life. Finally, Duker explained why this project is so important. Darwin wasn't just this old guy with a beard. There was so much more to it than that. It's not just to educate, it's to have fun. So really crossing that boundary from science to art and taking it all together, making it something tangible. Duke of Waldhaus from the Leverhulme Centre for Evolutionary Studies, speaking to Laura Sol. And finally today, we bumped into Terry Pratchett, OBE. He's the author of the Discworld novels, and he told us about his discovery of Darwin. The moment I heard of evolution, it made absolute terrific sense to me because I'd look around and i think cats and dogs look pretty much alike I bet if you shaved a cat and shaved a dog why is it all this stuff looks alike? You know, look at everything hole in the middle, all the way down generally speaking four bits sticking out moving you around okay, there's spiders (laughs) and I thought, it's like there was some basic pattern that it all came from. And actually, I couldn't even articulate it when I was about five or six. 
but I was an incredibly weird kid. I'd just been talking to me mum. So when, I, when my science teacher gave me his copy of Origin of Species to Read, I took it home and immediately came down with flu. So I read Origin of Species in a fever, and it just burned away at me. And it, it was like as if I was reading gospel with the proviso, of course, that um, science is actually true. I think what we forget is that we are, in some cases, literally children of science. I am alive at the moment because of science. You have the spectacles that you're wearing, and so do I, because of science. Practically every material we see around us is because of science. Yes, some of the stuff I'm talking about is technology, but the science came first. We have, in a way, become as gods. You can tell that because we're often stupid, we wrangle, we fight, you know, like gods do. But we ought to get better at it. You know, we cannot possibly turn our back on it because it is not scientists that have got us into the mess we're in. It is stupid people. Some scientists are stupid, some are not. Sometimes it's our greed that's got us into the mess we're in. Science could still save us. And that was Terry Pratchett and the animals with four bits coming out of them. That's it for Tuesday's Roundup at the Darwin Festival. If you have anything Darwinian you'd like to discuss, then why not visit our forum? And that's at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. But we'll be back tomorrow with another summary of the Days of Hits.